0: Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the beautiful weather, the sunshine, um, these reminders of how much you love us. Um, I pray that we will be able to calm our hearts and our minds. I feel a little frazzled this morning, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Um, I pray that you will still us so that we can hear from you. May the words of our mouths and the thoughts and focus of our hearts be pleasing to you because we love you. We pray these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're at the finish line of First John. Yay! Um, we're doing this last, sec- this last chunk of five today, um, verses 13 through 21. Verses thirteen through twenty-one, and we'll see that here at the end of this first of this first epistle of John's, that he's really employing some of this amplification that we talked about. Um, This concept of coming back around to the same ideas and the same themes. Um, He's bringing things full circle. He's wrapping it up. I, in my house, we love Princess Bride. I don't know if you are fans of Princess Bride, but this, this this section makes me think of um, when Inigo Mortoya gets Wesley out of the pit of despair. They like rescue him and he kind of is trying to catch him up on all he missed. And he says, um, let me explain. There's too much. Let me sum up. And I feel like that's what John is doing right here. He's saying like, Let me sum up all this stuff that I explained. There's too much, but I really want to make sure that of all this stuff, you remember these things. So we get to verse 13, and here we have his purpose statement. What I think is is the purpose statement for the entire book. I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. So he's telling us... I have written to you so that you may know. Who's he writing to? He's writing to people who already believe in the name of the Son of God. You who believe in the name of the Son of God. And why is he writing? He's writing so that they can be confident in their status as, if you recall from verse 12, um, whoever has the son has life. He's writing so that they can be confident in their status as ones who have the son and therefore have life. And this life we talked about is um, both freedom and flourishing in the here and now in these temporal bodies and future life in the redeemed and the restored kingdom of the age to come. So John is using this last section here to really hammer home this point of the whole epistle that when we're doubting, when we're hearing voices that might be saying something different than what we know to be true, um, when they, competing voices might leave us scratching our head like do we know what we know, um, he's telling us don't forget to remember what you know. Don't forget to remember what you know. So let's fly through these verses real quick because he gives us um, this, this word no is used. I looked at both the ESV and the NLT translations. Um, so in these translations, the word no is used seven times in nine verses. Um, So we're going to look at those references real quick um, because each reference reminds believers of something that they know and hyperlinks back to um, something he's already talked about earlier in this letter. So quick flyby as fast as we can because there's a lot. So this first thing that we know, we know that eternal life is in the Son of God. And it's right there in our theme verse, which is that continuation of verse twelve into thirteen. So that who you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. And that's kind of referencing us back to chapter two, verses twenty three through twenty five, when he talks about that anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. But if you acknowledge the Son, you have the Father. So remain faithful to what you've been taught. And you remain in the fellowship, and in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life he has promised us. So he's reminding us here, we know that we have eternal life, and eternal life is in the Son of God. Then he moves on into verses 14 through 15, and um, he says, And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. So the second thing we know is that we can be bold and free in our prayer. We can be bold and we can be free in our prayer. We have confidence. This word, this concept of confidence comes up over and over and over again in first John. It's in verse two twenty eight or chapter two verse twenty eight. It's in three twenty one, it's in four seventeen. Um, we can be confident because of our position as those who believe in the Son of God and have life in his name that we can approach the Lord in prayer. We can be confident that He will hear us, so we can come to Him bold. We can come to Him boldly, and we can ask freely. First John three twenty two tells us that we'll receive from Him whatever we ask because we obey Him and do the things that please Him. As we abide in Jesus, as we make our home with Him, as we spend time with Him, we get to know God's will as revealed by Jesus in Scripture. And we begin to ask for the things that we know will please him. So now, I want to pause for a minute for a quick sidebar, because I know in these verses there are two things that come up that can be a little sticky for people. Um, for me, frankly, can be sticky. Two sticky situations that jumped out for, for me. And it came in, the, in these portions of the verse. He will give us whatever we ask for. Um, I don't know about you, but I've prayed prayers that I thought were pretty in line with what I thought the will of God was, and I, and I got a no, or a wait, or I felt like there were crickets. Um, so what does that say about what pleases God? If what I am asking for seems like a good thing, seems like it's in the will of God, and nothing's happening. And here's the thing. For me, this is my lived experience. Um, I have been praying for the last five years for healing from a visual impairment. I have a disease that causes progressive vision loss. Um, Obviously, I'm still functional, but I have progressive vision loss. I have visual impairment. Um, I have prayed for a long time to be healed, and it hasn't happened yet. It might never happen. Um it might keep getting worse. So what does that mean for me to be praying and according to God's will when healing isn't coming? Um, the ESV study Bible, like the, the, the notes, say that praying according to God's will includes the need to pray in faith. Okay, check, I've done that. With patience five years, I think I'm, I'm about to end, at the end of my patience, in obedience and in submission to God's greater wisdom. So in God's greater wisdom, he's determined that his no or his wait is doing more to conform me into the likeness of Jesus than his yes would. And that's not an easy answer. That's not one that I like. But it's giving me great comfort in an area where he doesn't seem to be answering. And I can cling to the promise that one day all sad things will be untrue. All broken things will be made new. And when I keep that in view, when I'm praying prayers that seem like they're aligned with God's will and they're not being answered, then the struggle and the pain that I feel becomes light and momentary compared to the weight of eternal glory that is promised to me. And I think that is how we can address these ideas of what happens when we don't answer, when scripture is promising us that if we're praying according to his will, we trust God's greater wisdom. Not an easy thing. So the second thing is that part that there is a sin that leads to death. So that's tricky. There's a sin that leads to death. Now, he also says there are sins that don't lead to death. So how do I know which sins I'm sinning? (laughs) Um, This seems to be an expansion of this previous verse about um, he hears us when we make our requests and gives us what we ask for. I think he's kind of giving us a little example here. And there are a couple of explanations for this. Um, Sin that leads to physical death. There are examples in both the Old and New Testament of people sinning and then literally dying. Um, But it seems like it is more appropriate to understand this as um, in the context of the whole book and in the context of what Jesus has told us in the Gospels. So a couple of verses we can look at real quick to give us an idea of what this might mean. And um, I'll give you a heads up. All these verses came from the cross references in my ESV Bible. They're right there in the side, that little letter that can be by your, that can be in the words. If you go over into the margins or maybe at the bottom of the page, they'll tell you these verses. So I didn't magically come up with this. Someone else did and told me what to do. So lest you think I'm brilliant, someone else is very brilliant. Um, Jesus is speaking. He says he's cast out demons, and and the religious leaders are telling him, you cast these demons out by the power of Satan. And he says, I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. And he told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. And then in Hebrews... The writer tells us, it's impossible to bring back repentance to those who are once enlightened. Um, It's impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. So, any ideas on what the sin that leads to death could be? In the greater context of 1 John that we're talking about um, people who are teaching something other than Jesus as the Son of God, in the context of avoiding um, that people who have the Son of God are not people who practice sin, in the context of loving brothers and sisters, in the context of what Jesus taught about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, I think that, again, to my ESV study Bible, that we are talking here about persistent and unrepentant resistance against the work of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's message concerning who Jesus is. So why um, John says here that um, there's a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. What does that mean? You should not pray for those that commit it. I think we can read it more as, I'm not saying that you have to pray for those who commit it. Um, there are a couple instances in Jeremiah where God tells the prophet, stop praying for them. They are unrepentant. Their heart's not going to turn. Stop praying for them. Jesus tells his disciples in the Gospels, there will come a time where your a town is going to reject you and you need to pick up your shoes and dust off your feet and move on. Um, I think we can continue to pray for repentance if we know someone who is Hardened in their hearts. Um, But I also think it seems like there are times when we can choose to move on. All right. What I do know, I will say this, is what I what I do know is what James tells us. Um, He says, this is the, the message version in his letter in chapter five. He says, make it a common practice to confess your sins. To each other and pray for each other, so you can live whole and healed. The prayer of a person living rightly with God is something powerful to be reckoned with. So I do believe that confession and prayer in the context of of community has power, and I think that's what John is getting at here um, when he's giving us these verses on prayer. All right, next thing that we know is that we are children of God. And I know I'm probably going to throw y'all for a loop here, but I'm skipping verse 18 real quick and going down to 19. We know that we're children of God and that the world around us is under control of the evil one. Um, he's, we see this same concept coming up in chapter 2, verses 12 and 14, when he says, I'm writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. He's reminding them what they already know. They are already children of God because, if you recall back to our theme verse, writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Believe in the name of the Son of God. Make them children of God. And he reminds them that being born of God is a dichotomy. You are either... A child of God or a child of the devil. If we think back to, I should have written this reference down. Anyways, there, there's the verse that he talks about being children of God versus children of the devil. Um, so, back to verse 18. So, we know we're children of God. So, As such, we are to, as Lisa told us several weeks ago, live rightly and love well. And here he's going back again to um, the verses in chapter three, towards the end of, or towards the middle of chapter three, where he says that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him, and he can't keep sinning because he's born of God. By this is it's evident who are Oh there's my verse. By this who it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God and does whoever nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we can be sure of our position as God's children when we see the fruit of what's been planted in our hearts. When we are living rightly and loving well, we can be sure that we have been born of God and not born of the devil. So how, as children of God, are we to be living rightly and loving well in a world that belongs to the evil one? And he tells us in verse um, 19. Uh, no, still we're still in 18. Um, For God holds them securely and the evil one can't touch them. To be born of God is to be held by God. And um, I like the way the message puts it. It says, um, to be God-begotten is to be God-protected. Um, and this hyperlinks not in the first John, but it, all the way back to the gospel of John in John 17, where he Jesus is praying his prayer before he goes to the cross, and he's telling the Lord, I've protected the disciples that you have given me by the power of your name, and now that I'm leaving, now you protect them by the power of your name. Um, Paul has the same idea in First Corinthians ten thirteen when he says, "God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll provide a way out so you can endure it." This concept of being held is the concept that God will preserve us, our our faith our status as the sons and the daughters of God, um, God will preserve this. And there's a couple of ways we can have this image. Oh, you know, I even made notes to remember my slides this time, it still didn't work. We can have this image. It comes up in nature all the time. We see these lovely images of um, mother animals protecting and holding and caring for their young. And it is a beautiful picture. When we're in pain, and when we're suffering because of the hardship that we're facing and the temptation that we're facing, this is a really comforting picture. Also, I can think, we can think of it another way. Um, when we are facing, I think there are times when we know we are under attack. It feels strong. It feels fierce. It feels violent and scary, and, and yes, this is comforting, but sometimes you want something a little stronger. And if you were here last semester, you know I love a good Lord of the Rings reference. So here we go. Um, I think we can think of it this way. Uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, they're on their path. They're running through the mines of Moria. They are being chased by this demon creature. And Gandalf turns and faces while they've, they're running across a bridge. The Fellowship has gotten across the bridge. Gandalf's trailing behind. This demon creature's coming after them. And he turns and he faces it, and this is what happens. And it's hard to tell, but he falls into the pit. I think that as comforting as that sweet picture of being held like a mother holds her child is, sometimes we need to be reminded that he's strong, that he stands in the way of the enemy, and the enemy cannot touch us. And because of that, we can hold fast. We can hold fast to our faith, to our belief. There's a song that I love called, He Will Hold Me Fast. And it says, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. And this is the picture I get in my head when I hear that song. The enemy shall not pass. Final thing, truth and life are in Jesus Christ. Verse 20, and we know the Son of God has come and he's given us understanding so that we can know the true God and now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ and he's the only true God and he is eternal life. Um, Jesus has come as a real person in a real body, fully God and fully man at the same time. John begins this epistle making sure we understand that by saying that he proclaims to us the one who existed from the beginning, the one he's heard and seen, the one he's touched, the one who is life itself was revealed to him, and now he testifies and proclaims that he is the one whose eternal life. John wants us to understand that Jesus really came. And he also wants us to understand that um, Jesus really came and Jesus revealed the Father to us. Back in, again, the Gospel of John, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one, that is Jesus, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. Eternal life comes only through him who is the true and real Jesus, who has revealed the true and real God to us. So in light of all this, John ends with a charge, and it kind of feels a little weird because it it feels like a strange thing to tack on the end. He says, dear children, keep away from anything that might take place, God's place in your hearts. And that feels kind of to me like he spent all this time reminding us what we know, and then he like throws that one little sentence in there. But I think what he's saying here is in light of all this, don't exchange the real thing for a fake. Don't trade out the real Jesus for a false one. Don't give your allegiance to something that cannot possibly hold the weight of your worship. So we've made it through 1 John. Now let's think for a minute how this idea ties into the theme we've been exploring of abiding in hope, and let's talk about what we do with all this knowledge, because knowledge is great, but we need to do something with it. Um, how does this tie into abiding in hope? I think when we remember what we know, we can abide and walk in hope. When we remember what we know, it fortifies us as we're living in this broken world. And I think it does it in two ways. We can abide the act of continually calling to mind what is true. means that we're making our home in Jesus. We're making our home in hope. We are making our home in the confident expectation of the fulfillment of all these promises. And we can abide in the sense of enduring without yielding. We can abide in the sense of withstanding. When we are armed with the truth, when we remember what we know, the hope that it brings girds us up for life in a world that still belongs to the evil one. So let's think about it in terms of this. I don't know um, if you've ever seen a kid who just maybe is walking onto a sports field and they feel like they're terrible at soccer and they're gonna fail and this is gonna be an awful game and how do they walk when they feel dejected and defeated and like feel like they're awful kind of head down dragging along now what if you as their parent went to them and said you know what you can do this you're my kid. I love you no matter what you do. I we've we've kicked around the ball in the yard together. I've given you tools for this and and no matter the outcome it's okay cuz you're still my kid. I still love you. And this is supposed to be fun. What happens when we start speaking truth to this child? Yeah, maybe they put their head up. Maybe they walk a little straighter. Um I think that's what John wants us to have in mind here as he's reminding us of what we know to be true. So the last thing, what do we do with all this knowing? And I'm going to use the author of Hebrews here because I think he gives us some good ideas, some good instruction. In chapter 10, this is the English Standard Version, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There are three lettuces. Lettuce. There are three lettuces. We're making a salad. Um, there are three let-us phrases. There. That's a little better. Um, Three let us phrases in there that I think gives us an idea of what to do with all this knowing. The first says, let us draw near. We abide confidently. We pray, we read scripture, we spend time in silence with the Lord, allowing the spirit to remind us over and over and over of what we know to be true. We draw near with confidence. The second, let us, let us hold fast We persevere steadfastly. We hold fast to the confession of our hope. We hold fast to what we know is true and let us gird us up, let us steal us, let us strengthen us for this fight that we fight in this world. And we remember not to trade the real Jesus for a fake. And then the next thing we can do is that Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We um, encourage continually. And here's a quick summary of that. Abide confidently, persevere steadfastly, and we encourage continually. We're not made to live this life alone. Um, So we think about how we can confess together and pray together and spur one another on um, to holding fast to our confession of hope, um, to loving one another Sometimes we need someone else to remind us that God is holding us. You can be that person for someone else. So some questions to ponder. Which of these things that we talked about, these things that we know, might you need to remember the most? And how can that knowledge move you towards abiding persevering or encouraging. John tells us Jesus Christ is the Son of God and in him alone is our eternal life and to him be all the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the assurances that you gave us. Spirit, call these things to mind. Help us to remember them and to live out of them. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.